Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And so if it was X amount of breaths, I don't know, 10,000 a day, whatever it is, you know, give an award, a number for, for each one of those painful breaths where you gasping for air, you know, and, and, and how much is each of, are each of those worth? Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to the uh, Great Trials Podcast. As always, uh, I am your host, Steve Lowry, with my uh, uh, always able uh, co-host, Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. Always able. Like, <laughs> is that know. a compliment? I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, a, it's been a tough morning already. So. Uh, and Yvonne, you're so far away, our, uh, our listeners can't hear that. But uh, why don't you tell uh, the uh, listeners about your, your life change? Um, yes, that's right. I moved back to Atlanta from Savannah. So a lot of people, um, and by a lot of people, I mean, I think two people asked what that would mean for the podcast right. and <laughs> the podcast will stay the same. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but Steve and I rarely record from the same room anyway. So, yeah, exactly. So it really doesn't change anything for the podcast, but, um, I miss Savannah already, but I'm glad to be back in Atlanta. And uh, and you're in a, a, a beautiful condo overlooking the city of Atlanta, but um, you also want to tell the uh, our um, listeners about your attack by your ceiling fan? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, I was hoping you would ask. <laughs> so I have, I, as background, I don't. I have spoken to a couple other people who had this phobia, but I have always like been nervous about turning ceiling fans on high or like if I went to like a beach rental or something like I'm always like checking out the fan is it really wobbly if it fell where would it fall right. <laughs> so my first night in um this condo which I am renting and which looks you know brand new they've done such a nice job renovating it or whatever um this fan looked very sturdy, so I really wasn't that worried about it and I, w I went to bed with it on high and woke up at about 6 a.m with it falling onto my legs while it was on, while I was sleeping, <laughs> fell out of the ceiling. Um, it was, and so now I'm like, I thought that was an irrational fear, but now I'm like, is it rational? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we can, uh, we can. You uh, gotta check out that product, man. Right, we, we, I think we can effectively scratch off a ceiling fan inspector for you, uh, Yvonne. <laughs> yeah, um, so now, so, the, but you know, my, um, the owner of the condo was great and already put a new fan on, in that I have actually been brave enough to turn on, but I have not put it on high yet. <laughs> and def definitely don't leave it on while you're sleeping. <laughs> I just don't want it attacking you in the middle of the night. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was exciting, but it's all been uphill from there. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, well, we definitely miss you down here in Savannah, but as you said, the podcast uh, will go on and there should be absolutely nothing different about it. Exactly. Um, uh, so, uh, but anyways, well, let's get to our guests. I, um, so, Yvonne, I, uh, I uh, am so excited to talk to our guest uh, today. Um, he is... Um, been a good friend of mine uh, for a, a long time, uh, and he is just a fantastic trial lawyer. And I know that not just because I've seen you know the uh, number of huge verdicts he's gotten, but I've also had the uh, uh, opportunity to try a case with him. His, uh, his courtroom strategies, his courtroom instincts are uh, are spot on. He's really good up in front of the jury. And uh, and as far as you know, when you see when you see somebody who just really connects uh, with the jury, um, our guest uh, is really good at connecting with the jury. Um, so uh, I, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce my uh, good friend Barry Eichen, who is a partner at Eichen Crutchlow Zaslow in uh, Edison, New Jersey. Uh, with I think they have offices all over New Jersey, um, and their website, if you want to look up Barry, is. NJ Advocates. I almost said www. It's njadvocates.com. Barry, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for the introduction. I don't know how well deserved it is, but I appreciate it. Well, I can tell you this, Barry. It, it, I mean, uh, while you know, you and I may not do things technically correct all the time. I can tell you that, uh, as far as having fun in the courtroom and having fun at trial, uh, there's nobody better. Oh, that's, uh, I'm going to agree with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, the, 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 the case that we tried together, which may be a subject of this podcast at some point down the road, uh, I probably have no other trial that I have more stories of just, you know, things that happen with the judge, with opposing counsel, with my, with my co-counsel. Uh, it, it, it was just, uh, every day seemed like something new. 
Yeah, how about the video we put up afterwards? Exactly. So, so, so Barry and and uh, you you didn't want me to talk to the talk about this, but I can't help myself. You, uh, we can see you on our Zoom uh, uh, video, and I can see that you've got a black eye. So let's tell our listeners what's going on with you, man. What you got a black Didn't eye? Didn't I tell you we weren't going to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, and you know I wasn't going to listen to that. Tried to embarrass me. <laughs> I was sparring at fifty nine years old, and you I caught an elbow. Jeez, <laughs> man. I well, mean, it's a cool way to get a black eye. I mean, it's it's not a ceiling fan falling on your head. It's like <laughs> right, yeah, right. a much cooler way to get an injury. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, Yvonne, I talked to Barry uh, uh, last night uh, before, you know, about what we were going to talk about. And uh, and he's telling me he's going to go to this uh, jujitsu class. And uh, and then apparently the jujitsu class got the uh, got the better of him. I think it's pretty cool. He look. I think you look cool with a black eye, Barry. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I hopefully I won't be sporting it much more than two weeks. <laughs> well, it just depends on if you keep taking jujitsu. Yeah, I mean it looks good. I I try to keep it around. Taking you know, taking elbow every two weeks. Do I look like a tough guy. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> so, uh, well, Barry, let's talk about this case that uh, that you tried. So, so the case that we're talking about is a case that Barry tried back in 2005 uh, with his uh, partner at that time, Billy Levinson, uh, who's another fantastic trial lawyer and uh, and I'll just say uh, a, a character um, is probably the the. Uh, uh, least at least i can say about it he is he is a a all-around good guy but just a an absolute character as is barry um so the name of this case is uh, roger fusilli versus new jersey transit and cnj which i think stands for central new jersey uh transit or something like that um and it was tried in um middlesex county new jersey uh the it was a fila case uh which is a uh a, Federal Employers Liability Act case, which I'm going to let Barry explain what that is, uh, and the total verdict, or the the verdict was 4.1 for pain and uh, 4.1 million for pain and suffering, and 15.1 million for wrongful death, for a total verdict of 19.2 million uh, for the death of Roger Fusilli, uh, and um, uh, I, from what we understand, uh, we believe that's the highest uh, FILA verdict that there uh, ever was in the state of New Jersey. So, um, so Barry, this is a, a fascinating case. And um, I'll talk through the facts just really uh, briefly. And you can tell me what I've, uh, what I've screwed up and gotten wrong. Um, but as I understand it, Roger Fusilli was uh, essentially, a, uh, he, he did a lot of um, sort of mechanic work for the railroad. Uh, he worked at a central facility where he actually worked for worked on trains for three different companies that sound like it was central New Jersey, New Jersey transit and Conrail. And because of that, he got exposure to uh, a number of different, a, a number of different uh, toxic uh, sources, I guess he, he got exposed to asbestos, silica and metal dust. And because of that, he got uh, interstitial pulmonary fibrosis uh, which essentially scars the lungs and causes um, the person to stop breathing. And, and so it's a sort of a long, drawn-out death uh, that he suffered. And when I was talking to you last night, Barry, and I, I want you to tell our listeners about this, when, he, when the family first came to you about this case, the diagnosis he had was idiopathic interstitial pulmonary fibrosis. Why don't you tell our listeners what idiopathic is? Well, idiopathic is a... No known origin. So the doctors at first couldn't figure out how he happened to come down with interstitial fibrosis, which is actually meant he was not going to survive. There was no treatment, there's no cure. You lungs harden, you can't exchange oxygen, and you, for all intents and purposes, you suffocate. It's a horrible injury, um, uh, an illness to have. But before I go into that a little bit, I just want the listeners to know what FELA is. and you know, way back when, when the railroads, the wealthy individuals who purchased, uh, who were building the railroads, went to the government and said, "Look, we want all this land, and we're going to we're going to connect the east and west of the country." And so, the government just gave them that property, and so in return, the government got to regulate. 
a railroad. And that's why it's government regulated. And so during the building of the railroads, many people, many of the, of the workers got injured, maimed, lost legs, arms. It was brutal work and it killed a lot of the people that originally were brought here to build the railroad. And so after that, Congress passed FELA and said, look, in light of the many lost limbs, legs, and lives, we're going to make this law a little different. So in railroad cases, any negligence, even the slightest, that contributes to any illness, in even the slightest amount, the railroad is responsible. So it really kind of shifts the burden of proof. And so I guess the listeners should should know that coming in. And so now, what was your question? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, so no, I think that's a great explanation of of, of FELA. It, it is a relaxed standard. So when it comes to um, you know looking at, at you know what you need to prove, uh, you know as we all know, the plaintiffs have the burden of proving their case. Uh, but in an FELA case, the standard for what uh, a plaintiff needs to prove is is um, is relaxed, I guess is the way I would say it. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's so, a so, any so negligence. I remember any, your question. Yeah, let's go. So my question was, Barry, uh, what is idiopathic? Yeah. And, and, and to talk about it, you, you already said that it means you, you don't know the cause. But I mean, so from a lawyer's perspective, when, a, when a, you're looking at a potential new case, I mean, that word is a very tough word to swallow because it means you're going to have what I would say is major causation problems. So, so well, not only is it a tough word to, to swallow, but this family for over a year and a half vetted many law firms, which turned this, continually turned this case down because of the causation issue. So eventually it went to a friend of mine who's a lawyer who referred it to me um, and said, Barry, this is a you know, complex case. I really don't do these kind of cases. Could you entertain I met the family. The family was really Love um, This guy was married. He had three kids. They were all really nice kids, and it was a you know an Italian family, and their life revolved around you know being together. And so, with the loss of the father, it, it hit them all, all very very hard. And so, I took a look at it, and I had noticed that no one bothered to get the material data safety sheets, which are the exposures the railroad has to keep on hand, and so we've got that information, and those exposures are sheets of whatever chemicals, whatever dangerous toxic substances, et cetera, are at the railroad. So we got them. And the treating physician never looked at the occupational side of it. So I got permission from the family, called the treater, and said, hey, look, I understand you, you said this is idiopathic, and that's fine. Uh, only want you to do what's right, but if you take a look at this in the context of his work environment, maybe that can explain um, how this occurred. So he took a look, uh, I got him the MSDS, I had his family and co-workers say what his functions are, what exposures he had, uh, including silica, asbestos, uh, diesel exhaust, which has too many carcinogenic uh, materials to mention. There are hundreds, if not thousands associated with diesel as well. And after looking at that, he said, wow, this explains a little bit, and this actually makes sense. And I think there is a connection. And so I went a little further than that. I got an occupational expert also um, to handle occupational disease and medicine. And then I thought, well, did he get a when he first diagnosed in the lungs? He needs biopsy. And sure enough, he did. And I wrote to the hospital, and I got copies of those slides to see if they were bifringent material. In other words, material that shouldn't be in the lungs but for exposure. And so we had it looked at under high uh, microscopic evaluation um, uh, with a special micron uh, microscope, and we found bifringent material, which are really reflective material that comes only from exposure to things like silica and asbestos. And sure enough, we found bright lights, if you looked under the film, which were actually, actually silica dust in the lungs. So all these materials wound up contributing. And 
we wound up getting industrial hygienists, a myriad of experts. We must have 15 different people to build this. And then it kind of just materialized. And we went to trial because the offer was very, very low. They didn't think we could prove the causation. Um, but we did. This episode of the Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. What about um, in that whole process, um, I guess Roger had, had passed by the time you tried the case. When you were, right? Is that right? We had him on video. Okay, right. And so I was going to ask, when did you, during that process of you trying to investigate, okay, is this something you can file? Can you nail down the causation? When did you um, decide to do his video testimony? How'd you go about well, doing that? I got word that he was deteriorating rapidly and he had maybe 30 oxygen tanks behind him. He was really great. He asked things to breathe. It was very, very, very sad. And so I said to the family, this is going to be difficult. We need to protect you and your future, and we need to get in. We need to see what, we need to let the jury see what the railroad did to this guy. And um, so we got a team of videographers in um, before he passed. Well, you know, I have to say, Barry, I mean, you know, that is uh, just tremendous work and really is a testament to not giving up on a case. And, uh, and, uh, you know, like I said, knowing you, I know you don't give up on cases, but, you know, when you see a case come in, uh, you know, that's going to be very difficult. And, you know, right from the beginning, you you see that the diagnosis is basically telling you that they don't know what caused this. So from a causation standpoint and what you have to prove for your case, I mean, that's uh, a very difficult. So, uh, I mean, so that that is, you know, just fantastic work. T tell our listeners a little bit as a practice pointer, you know, so when you said you went and got the material safety data sheet, I mean, how, how'd you go about finding uh, this stuff so that you could you could see what he had been exposed to and then um, just to, you well, know, well, you, know under it out. you know under FOIA Freedom Freedom of Information Act you can you can accept all that information. So right. what did we subpoena? We sent a FOIA request and they had no choice but to give it to us. And when they didn't give it to us, we did a motion and got an order and the judge forced them to give it to us. Right, right. That's how we got it. Um, because and that was before you filed suit, right? <laughs> Um, or had you filed suit? Oh, no, no, no. It was before I filed. But I, I got to tell you, I wasn't sure I was going to get it in time. So it was pretty close. I may have filed. I definitely sent the FOIA request before filing suit. I do not know because I didn't have a lot of time. The statute was about um, to file suit. So I may have uh, prophylactically filed suit. I don't really recall, but I think right. I right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, yeah. So that's another, you know, I guess just part to add to this. You get this case that's got this big causation problem, and it's and the statutes uh, coming up. I mean, that's that. You know, um, it takes a lot of guts to take on a case like that, and um, and you know, again, to to just kind of see that through to the end, uh, it you know, is really just great work for the family, and I, I'm sure they were um, extremely grateful. Well, you know what. I'm Unfortunately, unfortunately, at the same time, double-edged sword, I kind of made my career taking the quote-unquote unwinnable case, right? Right, right. So 
you know, it's a lot of people come in and say, well, you did this thing. And it, you know, it becomes sometimes daunting to take some of these cases that are uphill battles at every turn. And so, look, you know that yourself. I, my first four local cases, it was also in the Thoralysis case, I brought you in. Yeah. You were that kind of guy that just never stops, will not take no for an answer, and keeps pushing forward. So, I mean, you know, I'm glad I brought that and I brought you in. You had experience with it. You did an incredible job and you did a, you had a lot of fun doing it. No, we did. We definitely did. We definitely did. That takes the difficult case to another. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did because because uh, it's uh, you know it sparked a, a a friendship that's uh, lasted through the years. So that that's uh, that's been great. Um, but uh, so so back to the case. The um, I saw that when you you tried this case, it took about four weeks. And um, and as you said already, I mean there, there you've got this standard for FILA cases, which is a lesser standard. Um, so was the, as far as the, the fight between you and the defense, was it, was it really on this causation battleground? And is, is that what the trial mainly was going back and forth on? Absolutely. Well, it was a little more complicated than that. See, Roger Facilli had his own stone cutting. So the, they were arguing the silica came from his own stone cutting. And so I didn't understand where the defense was going. Maybe they thought we didn't understand FELA work. But they were saying, well, you got silica from the stone cutting and you, you were exposed to diesel at this spot and you cut wood at your house. I don't care if, about any of those things. And neither does anybody else that knows, really knows that law because, okay, let's assume he got some silica from the stone cutting. That doesn't dismiss the fact that he got silica at the railway. Right. right. So any contribution, even <clears throat> didn't hurt me in any way shape or form but they still fought that fight um, and it was to no avail kind of backfired yeah right well one of the things i noticed um in the closings that i thought was effective um was that was bringing out that they seemed to kind of um waffle between um the defense of it being um idiopathic and just kind of not having a known origin but then pointing to all these exposures that Roger could have had from other work doing handyman work or I guess the stone cutting business. And so because of that, it kind of, it, it, it really sort of undermined their defense because number one, they were waffling between those two things. And then number two, like if they were talking about exposures, then as you pointed out, well, then the railroad exposures matter too, if it, if it is yeah, from exposure. So I bought right into that. I, I actually told the jury, sure, he had all those exposures. And he also had these. And here's the law. And here's why the law is like it. And so it didn't really change anything. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I saw, I thought y'all, the, the way that was argued uh, by both you in uh, opening and, and by um, uh, Billy in closing was um, that, um, it, it, I mean, it really was a double edged sword for the defense to bring up the fact that uh you know while they're at one on the one hand they're saying this is idiopathic so we don't know the cause but then you know if it was caused by something it's caused by all these other things and it's um and you really you know can't have it both ways they either got to pick one or the other either you don't know the cause or you know these things contributed as did his work at the railroad well in addition to that there was one of the railroads had never provided rest of proper respiratory protection nor had they ever warned any other workers. So they said, we provided this mask. So I took the mask and ripped it in front of the jury because it was paper thin. <laughs> the, the mask right on it, on the box, they, I subpoenaed some of the masks that they used to have, and right on the box, it said, this is not a respiratory protection. So that didn't go very well for them either. And so, uh, um, and there were no filters ever available, and they were never fit tested, and no one ever said, hey, you can get cancer, you can get you can get fibrosis, you can get lung disease, no one ever warned any of these were. Right. And I, and I think that if you haven't, you know, for our listeners who either are not lawyers or haven't handled a case like this, I, it's really shocking. I don't know. I think there's this, um, like perception that, that, you know, it's very like, 
old, for railroad work to be dangerous is very old tiny and like that you know more recently it's not that dangerous there there isn't that exposure but when you actually read about um in your case and in general what workers are doing many many chemicals and horrible things that they're exposed to it's really crazy like it's well, really shocking that because these railroads many of them have what are called engine and so when you go into the engine house there's no ventilation at all windows are you know shut these diesel engines come in and i've had many workers say when we're in the engine house the diesels are running you can put your hand in front of your face and not see your hand but think the diesel exhaust oh man so but that's in an engine house right so you won't know that as a layperson but they pull these things for you know to work them into engine houses while they're running and so everyone working in that engine house even if you're a clerk right i had an argument i just settled the case but i had an argument from um one of the attorneys uh, was opposing my client this is a different case so, uh, and i'm i don't know if i'm gonna, there's a confidentiality on it so i'm not going to mention the name i don't think there is but meanwhile he said well you work as a clerk you just gave tickets well yeah i worked in a clerk and but it was in an engine house and so i had to come outside <laughs> that actually this guy died of cancer, lung cancer. And so it was so long ago, we couldn't find any witnesses. He's only married six months, his wife really couldn't do it. So I scoured the earth and found someone that had worked at that facility many years ago, but I was like 78 years old, Wow. 80. And he said, oh yeah, that engine house, the clerk, I remember where the clerk's office was. <laughs> he had to come out and he went right through that diesel exhaust. So, wow. Yeah, it's interesting. But we do a fair number of, um, I guess, uh, kind of exposures with regard to lung disease um, of railroads. Many people do those, you know, railroad cases that I really don't do a lot of, like repetitive injuries. Um, right. In, in the cases where there's toxic exposures, which, you know, have devastating effects. Yeah. We do a decent amount of those. Yeah, one thing I was wondering, and I, I um, didn't see uh, from the transcripts, but um, did you have other employees um, that he had worked with, and did any of those guys or, or, or uh, women have um, similar uh, illnesses, any lung issues or, or cancer? I never put on anybody in the facility that had a similar issue. I did put on witnesses who firsthand knowledge witnessed the exposure in the chemicals. So, for instance, we didn't have asbestos. Here. Well, why was there a big sign that said danger asbestos? In you know, stuff like that. Right, right. <laughs> why were these guys in white suits? over their heads with breathing masks walking to the facility. Right. So, so kind of things like that. So the, the um, and I guess when it came to this issue of whether or not they were given proper uh, respiration, uh, I mean, so on the one hand, they're arguing that they, I guess they gave the right respirators or didn't, or, you know, what was their explanation about that? Well, because the older railroads, which are still in existence now, some of them, but back in the day, they never provided respiratory As they started getting sued for these kind of cases, they started to fit test a little bit more, right? In the newer, in the, in the later years, much later. You know, maybe, and I'm talking off the top of my head, so don't quote me, but maybe the late 90s. Um, so they started fit testing and started to, you know, warn a little bit more in the late 90s, I think. And, and did they, they never uh, warned Roger Fusilli and never really gave, I mean, I, it sounds like they, at some point they gave him some type of respirator, but just wasn't the... No, what they never gave him any respirators. They never had, they've never had uh, safety meetings about respirators. The safety meetings were wear scale to, you know, sandal, uh, shoes, you know, um, wear, wear whatever you need to wear, protective equipment, but never respiratory and so they never gave them respirators. They had available paper mask, mask but that's not a respiratory protector. That's a paper mask. Right. And they never told them that they needed it. No, never did. 
So talk a little bit about your opening. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Bay. No, no. I read a quote one time. I'm probably going to screw it up. <laughs> but, you know, as lawyers that, that fight the hard fight, we don't take the cases against the poor and the weak. Anyone can do that. We take the cases against oppression, against, you know, corporate malfeasance, against, you know, the, the, the big company taking advantage of the little bit. That's a hard fight. And so I, I think what we do is kind of cool. And I hope we make our world a little bit safer. Yeah. I mean, I, that's the hope of any trial lawyer, uh, that, you know, is to make a difference in your client's life first and foremost, but then, uh, uh, you know, hopefully uh, make the world a little bit better, a little bit safer. So then you were saying? Well, I was, I was just going to talk to you about your opening because I thought you did a really good job. You know, I wanted to talk to you about how you approached opening and, and put it together, but I thought you did a really good job of sort of putting the jury in the, in the household, in the Fusilli household and sort of painting the picture of what it was like to be in that household. And then you, you know, took the jury from the household and put them in the workplace. And, uh, and, and I, I just thought the way that you approach that and explain that to the jury, you know, I could really just reading it, I could really visualize what you were saying. And I, I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about how you approached opening and how you, uh, you know, put that together. Well, you know, this, this had a, kind of special um, connection with this case because my father, you know, my father was a, a guy that worked at Pet Boys and managed the Pet Boys. He changed brakes every once in a while. He did whatever. He was a hard, he was a blue collar worker. Yeah. He certainly was a blue collar worker and a good guy to his family. So was my, so was my father. So I started thinking about family and then I thought, let me take them to a place, to a picture, you know, and it, I haven't read, I've never read my opening other than at trial. And so you probably got the transcript because Malia keeps my, my paralegal keeps all my transcripts. But I think I remember opening, let me take you to a little house and let me take you to the driveway and I describe the house. And when you open the door, you'll see, you know, Mrs. Cecilia at the stove, you know, preparing her tomato sauce. And you'll see the kids doing whatever they saw. And I thought it would be important to paint a picture of a human being, not just a case. But, a, you know, a life and a, a family that loved each other. So they understood the effect. And I don't think you do that by opening and saying, this, you know, this case is about, you know, Mr. Facility, the good guy. You know, I don't think it tells a real story. And so I, I thought, you know what, maybe I should start this way. And uh, I think the jury connected to it. It was, I have to imagine it was really powerful because reading it, it was really powerful. And it was, it was also the first thing I had read. So I didn't even know what kind of case this was. So, you know, something bad happened because there's a, there's a case and like, and you're involved, but reading it, I just, I thought it was really powerful, but it was also like, I was, it was a very suspenseful, like I was like, what goes wrong? What happens? What happens to the mom? What happens to the kids? <laughs> you know, but I, but it was really effective because it immediately you know, even after voir dire, if, if the jury had a better idea of what the case was going to involve, it it really did sort of suck you in right away um, into into the case and into the family. You know, you became invested so that by the time you're describing what happens to him in the hospital, you know, it's just you're already on board. I was already on. I mean, of course, I'm going to be on board, but I was I was really on board. <laughs> well, I wanted to put him in that place, and then I wanted to take him to a very different place. I wanted to walk him through a hallway of a hospital, and I wanted to see his final days gasping for air with his family around him, his girls coddling him. You know, the same girls that he nurtured and provided for and cared for, now they're caring for him. And that's powerful if you have a close family. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it, not only did it paint just a picture, a really vivid picture of, of what this family was like and what it was going through, but you know, it, it invested the jury. I mean, it made it made you care what happens to this family, and and you you immediately want to help the family, and um and so I thought you know just you know from putting the jury you know in the same picture with this uh, with this family. I mean, it was really just a great job, and and really um, just uh, 
you know, I mean, totally, you know, totally invests you and, and, and makes you want to, to do something to help this family, which we always talk about at trials where, you know, that, uh, getting the jury to, you know, to care what happens here. And, um, it's just, it's just really good. But, you know, I appreciate that, but, you know, we as trial lawyers, everybody has to develop their own style, right? Yeah. And read what other people do, but if we don't believe in what we do, and if we don't adapt it to what we're comfortable with, and if we're not on it, it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't count. And yeah. my favorite part of law has been, and will always be, the art of law. Not the science of law, but the art of law. Because everything has to be artistic, right? Everything has to be I think set up in a way that connects with the human soul, right? And I think art plays into that. Yeah. It's a kind of a cool way to talk about life and talk about what's important in a setting where you can actually make a change. Who gets to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Really, who gets to do that? Actors get to do it. They get to tell a story. A little scripted, but right. cool, right? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's great. So, so tell us a little bit, Barry. Uh, you know, um, I've never, uh, you know, on the podcast, I've never talked about uh, jury selection up in uh, up in New Jersey, which you know, I <laughs> had the uh, was able to do with you, and I and I've never seen uh, jury selection done quite that way. Uh, uh, again, it's definitely different than the way we do it down in Georgia. Talk about, um, you know, in, in voir dire, uh, you know, uh, were you, you know, what type of juror were you looking for? What, how, how were you, uh, how were you, you know, trying to figure out what you I, wanted? I think, and I do you remember the jury makeup? Sorry. Well, you and I uh, had the pleasure of doing that together and we had a lot of fun doing it. In New Jersey, as you know, you can't voir dire, which is very different. Right? You can ask the judge, can I ask a couple questions? Usually, you know, most judges aren't going to give you a lot of leeway. There are some that, that will, and I wish the rules change at some point in Jersey, because I don't think it's fair at all. Yeah. He's got his whole life on the line, but can't ask the juror any questions. Really. The judge asks the questions pursuant to a, you know, scripted questions, and you get to add a couple. And, you know, if you have a great judge, you know, it can work. But if you don't have one, it doesn't give you a lot of leeway. You really don't know who's in that box. Right. And so the whole idea is to get people that are impartial. And so people that aren't being honest, and a lot of times they're not, it's a dangerous way to pick a jury. And, and you know that as well as I do. So I kind of bet, I have my office do a little research on the panel. I try to get the list early. I look up, you know, in Facebook or whatever is available to, to find some information. And who do I want? I want someone there. Yeah. If people have their minds made up, are lawsuits appropriate? Are they not appropriate? You know, people couched it in a in a much better way. You know, do, do you want to give up your would you ever give up your right to freedom? No one's gonna say yes to that. Right. Right? Well, what about your basic rights to, you know, whatever? And then kind of juxtapose it with your right to have a fair jury, the right to know what's in the mind of the person who's going to decide your fate. Um, and so it's difficult in, in New Jersey. And, and so I try to count, get those little, you know, here, here are your basic rights. Did you ever give those up? And when they say no, uh, you know, I'll say, well, I've got the right to, to have an impartial um, panel of people that are in your same community decide your fate. And so it's a little more complex than that, but really not. You know, you can't yeah. think it, you can't underthink it. Uh, and sometimes there's just a feel. You look at somebody and you say, this guy's not being honest with me, or this woman's not being honest. Yeah. You know, and you like, and then you'll have six challenges. And so, and six for cause. <clears throat> Look, yeah. say, we had 10 jurors, right? Six in a civil case. Usually they put seven if there's going to be a long trial. They put in eight because they knew it was going to be a long one. Right. We let all 10 go. No, I remember doing the same thing in, our, in the case you and I tried together. Is we had, I think, two alternates, and we decided just let them all go. Uh, deliberate. Um, but you, the, you know, and one thing I didn't explain when we're talking about uh, – uh, 
you know, voir dire, and, and Barry's exactly right. It's not truly a voir dire, but pretty much all of the questions are asked by the judge after you. I remember we submitted a questionnaire, and both sides submit that, argue about it, and then hopefully you get some of your questions asked. But what I, what the most challenging thing I remember about all of it was is that, you know, you have 12 people sitting in the jury box who are being who are answering the questions. And then you might have, I, I think in our case, we had another 88 people sitting out in the, you know, in, in the gallery and they're listening, but they're not answering. And so you, when a person answers a question that, that brings up a challenge for cause, you make your challenge for cause right then. And the judge may, you know, will excuse that person. And then they'll not. Come, right. Right. But if they do excuse them, and this is what was the most challenging is uh, if, they, if they do excuse them, they, they call the next name, that person comes up in the jury box. And, and from what I recall, all the judge does is says, you, you've heard all the questions asked, right? And they say, yes. And they say, do you have anything to tell us? And they'll say, no. So you have no idea. I mean, you don't but get to ask them those questions. questions. Right, right, yeah. So you don't know who you just got on your jury. Well, and so when you're doing the, if, if there's somebody that you're, that you're moving to strike for cause, are you like having a quick sidebar to do that, but this juror knows that you've, you've moved to strike them? Absolutely. Yep. And then if you lose, then you could be stuck with them. Well, and they yeah. know that you Especially tried to get rid of them. If you ran out of challenges, you could be tough. Now, there's a new jury verdict, uh, a jury selection manual in New Jersey. And I say not new, maybe three years old, which says a judge should not try to rehabilitate a witness. Um, for example, I, you know, I know, you know your mother was uh, died as a result of what you think was medical malpractice, but this case is different. You think you can be fair here. Well, I told you my mother died of medical malpractice. So, you know, in the past, judges used to be able to rehabilitate that client. Say, oh, I think she'll be fair. Well, it's not what you think necessarily, right? It's, does she have even an inclination? And based on the question, the answer is yes, she does. So now the new manual says you can't rehabilitate. And here's an example. And it gives you examples of inappropriate attempt to rehabilitate a juror. And so that's Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, we, you know, we've had that same, uh, uh, you know, a battle down here and, and we've gotten some good case law on it, um, which helps us, but it, it's, it's the old, you know, despite, you know, the fact that you said you'd be biased, despite the fact that you said you'd be leaning towards the defense, you know, can you listen to what the judge instructs and follow the law? And they'll say, yeah, I mean, who's going to say no to that? Right. So, uh, so yeah, it's the, uh, you know, we used to get that all the time and you don't see it as much, although I will say you still see it every once in a while. Um, well, so Barry, the, um, do you remember, I mean, I, I know this is back in 2005, so we're talking 14 years ago. Do you remember what your jury makeup was and, and, um, and how, it, how it shook out? I actually remember pretty well, to be honest with you, because after we got our verdict, the jurors walked across the street, all 10, and we had some drinks and some food. <laughs> Yeah, I do remember. Yeah. I think I had almost an equal split of men and women. Um, I had jurors as young as, I don't know, 22, 19, and as old as, you know, 70. Yeah. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. <laughs> 
Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. I, I should mention, uh, so one of my favorite things, other than trying to case with Barry, uh, but one of my favorite things about being in Middlesex County, New Jersey, at the courthouse there, is that right across the street is this great restaurant and pub called Clyde's, right? Yeah. And, uh, and a- after court, pretty much everybody from the courthouse goes over there. So you see the judges, you might see some of the jurors, you might see, you know, you, I mean, pretty much, and you'll see all the lawyers are all just sitting there. Uh, hanging out, having dinner, and you know, maybe having a having a drink, and um, and I, I remember um, I, I spent uh, I, I spent a, a good uh, I think four hours maybe with a uh, with a judge one time where we we had a, a break in the uh, in the trial, and so uh, so I had gone over to Clyde's and and I just sat there with this judge uh, who was not on our case; it was a different judge, and we just uh, sat there and uh, traded stories uh, for a you long time. A and, yeah, exactly. With the guy. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice guy. Oh, super nice guy. Super nice guy. And he was, uh, this is obviously a different case, but he was telling me about how, uh, you know, everything that was happening in our trial was all over the courthouse and everybody was talking about it. So, uh, you know, oh, the, good, good. the good, bad and the ugly. So, <laughs> well, you know what? There was a lot of ugly. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I don't know if we, we had maybe 21 in lemonade motions. Oh, there was a there was a lot of motions. Every of single piece of every single motion that would have helped us that were that I thought and you know it's my opinion would have been a fair <laughs> ruling just got shot down. <laughs> That's another case for another day, man. <laughs> I, I look forward to talking about that one. Yeah, yeah. But that was very interesting, and you know, you want to talk about. He did the best opening you ever saw in your life. Four jurors were crying during his opening. That panel got kicked out. And then we got the worst <laughs> tried because the judge wouldn't let a recall. They should have gotten, yeah. gotten in. But because the recall came up from our video, our tech guy, um, after the judge ruled it should be out by accident, was mistried. We got a second panel that was full of the meanest people you ever saw. <laughs> I didn't think we were going to get a verdict. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say they were mean, but they certainly weren't showing emotion like the first jury was. None. Say that. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's get back to Fusilli. So, um, so so Barry, I saw that this case took about four weeks. Can you can you kind of walk us through? Uh, you know, I mean, what it from reading this when I was reading the facts, it didn't seem like the type of case that should take that long. Um, but it but from I think what you said earlier, you had a bunch of experts. Uh, and the defense had a bunch of experts. Um, so t- talk to us, you know, a little bit about uh, about the sort of, you know, what what was the big battleground and why did trial take four weeks in, you know, in this case? Well, first of all, it's a complicated subject matter, right? Right. Someone with right. occupational medicine disease, a pulmonary, uh, a pulmonary expert, a... Um, I guess the treater was um, occupational medicine, and I think double boarded. So you had that. You had the treater that I actually called to today. You had. Um, an, I had two. I had an OSHA expert. I had uh, two other experts on liability. Um, what else did I have? I, I can't tell you the amount of experts. It was daunting how many experts I had. As you know, it was a very expensive case to try. Yeah. Wow. Um, so because of the logistics of, of getting all those experts in line, defense as well, you know, sometimes those experts were on the stand for three days. I mean, I put them in generally as quick as possible and as simply as possible because, you know, as well as I do, you can boil down everything to its lowest common denominator. And it's not complicated. The job of a of a plaintiff is to show it's really not complicated because what is confusion? I, I mean, the defense always wants to make it confusing so the jury can't make their mind up, even when it's very simple. So the cross is, one time I, I think one of the experts I put in in an hour, 15 minutes, and they spent two days crossing. Wow. 
that, that you know that's a very you know i we sort of have this rule of thumb that you should never cross longer than the um than the direct has gone um it, you know and i'm not saying we always stick to that but it's it's something we we strive for so I'm, when you cross somebody for two and a half i mean for two and a half days especially when they've only been on stand for an hour and 15 minutes you know at some point the jury is going to ask you know, the, or are going to think to themselves, I would, I would think that the, the defense must really hate this witness because they're spending, you know, and they must be scared of this witness because they're spending so much time trying to take this guy apart, you know? Um, and if you, and if they were effectively and able to you know, do that in an effective way, then you would do that in 15 minutes and sit down. Well, one of my industrial hygienists served a report that was 110 pages. I had two industrial hygienists. Yeah. And so then there were air testing experts, right? Did you air test? Well, they never air tested. I don't know why they bought an air testing expert. Um, I, I, I walked through the facility. Sort of like putting a, a canary in a coal mine, right? Yeah. Is that how you tested? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so, the, the, so their expert that, that it was allegedly testing didn't use any. No, not, of, no uh, scientific. Uh, uh, no. Just scientific. walked there. <laughs> walked through the facility. Oh, man. What'd you do? Look for dead bodies to your right and your left? Yeah, exactly. But do you, you see what I mean? It wasn't scientific at all. And it, yeah. We didn't need to test. The explosions were, it was an outside facility. Um, I wonder if that expert wore a respirator when he was in there. That would have been nice. I should have. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, go ahead. Oh, I didn't want to interrupt you, Barry. Are you? I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about, sounds like just, um, based on my impression that um, I think it's a she that was kind of helpful to you, but this occupational disease physician that was a treating physician, like Dr. Udasin, maybe Udasin, um, Udasin. Actually, Udasin actually did not treat uh, Murphy. Treated. Oh, okay. Okay. Got but, it. But Udasin, Udasin was very angry at the exposures, at the way she took it. You know, when, it, when they crossed her with regard to her feet, she was, the least expensive expert and did the best job. So she said, I'm not doing this. Thing. I don't make any. It goes to the university. Oh. Moderately charged. Because she, she said this is, I, I, I don't believe this is appropriate behavior. I don't believe, I don't like the conduct. And um, I'm going to testify and do a great job because I believe you're right. And so... She's a great witness and a very nice, very nice lady. Got it. Well, and it's nice. It sounds like Dr. Murphy as well. Like it sounds like you had good sort of um, participation or testimony from treating physicians, which you don't always have. Well, when you take the time to go visit them instead of talking to them on the phone in person and sit with them and let them know you're serious and this involves real people with real consequences. And I like to. I like to go and see my experts. I don't like to just send them a package because it sends a long message. So when you go there and say, hey, look, this is what I have, can you give me an honest assessment? And I'm not looking for you to do anything that's not completely by the numbers and completely honest because then you don't want to bring a case like that. Um, the truth is, I thought it was pretty clear that these exposures caused this idiopathic uh, disease. And I, you know, the doctors did too. I didn't have to twist any arms. They said, oh my God, I never had these, you know, his work, um, uh, his employment file. I never saw these material deficits. I never knew what the witnesses said, right? Because they had, what did the witnesses say? Well, you know, the witness said X about the exposure. So, um, you know, once they realized that a lot of stuff was hidden that they should have had available to them, they... Oh yeah, yeah. I wonder. Honest case. I I wonder if um you know in it, with a illness like interstitial pulmonary fibrosis, where as you said, there's no cure for it. If, if if is that a reason why the doctors don't try to look for a cause because they know that they're not, they're not going to be able to treat it, and so it's really about making the patient comfortable and. It's and, all palliative care. Yeah. Right. You do your care of. Uh, medical cases, as do I. Um, so we understand how doctors look at things for the most part. 
But yeah, yeah, at that point, it's all palliative care. Yeah. Well, let's talk, uh, Barry, about damages in this case. And um, as I said already, the, the total verdict was $19.2 million. Uh, it was $4.1 million uh, for um, conscious pain and suffering, and then $15.1 million for the wrongful death. And I didn't ask you this. Uh, how old was Mr. Fusilli? I think Roger was in his late 50s. Okay. Um, it could have been admitted. Yeah. So you know, uh, so fifteen point one million for the for the you know for his wrongful death. I mean, that, those are that, that's really good work. How, how did you, um, how, how did you approach you know uh, explaining damages or what what should be awarded in this case? And did you ask the jury for a number or uh, did you leave it to them? In, in New Jersey, you're not allowed to suggest a number for a wrongful death. You are not allowed to say, you know, what's this monet, you know, what's a life worth? You know, if you look right. at the picture right here, it just sold for $100 million. Some states, you get to, to say things. Right. And it actually resonates. Why is a human life worth less than an inanimate object, right? So, but we can't say any of that. We have one argument, you know, given what's fair, but the argument under the rules in New Jersey, you can make a time unit on. So you take an aspect of an injury and you multiply it times a unit of time, and then you can put a number on each unit of time. You can't tell them what number to put on. So knowing the facility case, I probably asked the doctor on the stand how many breaths did he gasp for during a normal day. And so if it was X amount of breaths, I don't know, 10,000 a day, whatever it is, you know, give an award, a number for, for each one of those painful breath for you gasping for air you know and 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 how much is each of or each of those worth and so i probably did something like that although i don't know um but i would imagine that would be the argument got it well and one of the things no i saw that but to use time in new jersey it's another rule change i wish we could work on but we're a pretty conservative state when it comes to uh, jury selection when it comes to asking for a number, when it comes to a lot. Yeah. Um, one of the things I noticed was that, so, you know, you talked about how important the family um, was and how Roger was a family man and he had four kids. And I guess um, one of the kids was um, autistic, special needs. And it sounded like, it sounded, this seemed crazy to me, but it, it, it sort of read like in the closing, one of the things that they were sort of questioning was really was to what extent one of those kids really needed assistance from his yeah. parents or? Well, well, because only dependents can take, right? The grown children really can't take under FBI. Um, if you're, I guess, challenged like one of the children were, He's dependent, and he'll always be dependent. Right. And so, if they want to fight that fight, you know, God bless them. But I mean, who's not gonna? Who in there, you know, that has a, an actual pulse is not gonna feel. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Well, and that's. I was just wondering, like, how could that have gone over? Anything, any way other than badly. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Well, look, I had him come in. For two seconds to say hi to the jury. I said, Can you I put him I said, Can you stand up? Will you please say hi to the jury the jury? He waved. I said, no more questions. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you gonna do with that? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Don't tell me they tried to cross examine him. <laughs> they were thinking about it. One of the attorneys, his names will remain uh, English and the other kind of kicking them under the table saying, Don't ask him anything. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, well, and, and Barry, you said that um, you, you uh, I think you said you were able to spend some time with the jury afterwards. What did they, uh, what did they have to say about the case, if you remember? They said we were with you from the moment you opened your mouth. Well, that's nice. At the end of the, you know, the end of the opening, they said, they didn't say, and they actually didn't say it like that. They said, we heard your open. So what we did we were kind of on your side from the beginning, but we were keeping our mind open because you always have to hear the other side. But we kind of liked your opening a lot and it resonated. Then when the defense opened, it didn't sound credible. And then when the evidence came in, it really didn't sound credible. Yeah. So, 
So I think an opening kind of sets a pace. Of course, if your case is not good and your client is not likable and your science is not there, no matter how good you sound at opening, no matter how much they want to buy your version, they're not gonna. If if you you know if the science isn't there for the most part, I think the jury system works. Yeah, I think that's you know saying that you, uh, you I always stress this on how important opening is. I mean you know for us because voir dire is the first time we get to talk to the jury in an opening, but I mean that's really your you know your first chance to make a an impression on the jury. So it's uh, in, in a lot of times, you know, we know that people can make up their minds or at least lean one way uh, very quickly. So, um, so well, tell the truth in the opening, right? So my yeah. opening consisted of that story, right? It also yeah. consisted of, here is our, our expert's argument, here are their expert's argument, right? Yeah. So we're right and they're wrong. Here's, the, here's a fact. They did not provide respiratory, a proper respiratory mask. That's a fact. They couldn't fight. So if all those facts are true, then of course they're going to buy your story. That's why it's so important to be truthful in opening. Yeah. Because yeah. if you give them information that you can't back, at least in my experience, and I'm not professing to be a dude in any way, shape, or form, <laughs> but um, at least in my experience, if you give them honest facts, you're going to you're going to get rewarded. And if you lie to them, oh. you're not. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it, you know, honesty uh, and, you know, being straightforward, being credible is so vital in any case. And, uh, and I, I, I tell people this from time to time, and this is with all due respect to my defense lawyer friends, but I say, you know, plaintiff's lawyers have to be absolutely accurate and correct defense lawyers can make up stuff and they can throw stuff around the courtroom and, you know, hope that somebody buys it. The plaintiff's lawyers can't do that because you're the one with the burden of proof. You're the one who's trying to get the jury to do something for you. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you, you, you have to be absolutely straightforward and incredible with the jury. You said something about Wadir, you know, it's the first time you get to Well, not really New Jersey, is it? Yeah. The first time I ever did Wadir was 15 years ago or so when I represented uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania on average wholesale price cases where we sued uh, certain drug companies and the allegation was that they were overcharging Pennsylvania Medicare and Medicaid patients. And we tried two of those cases. Each trial was three months. Um, I had never tried a case in Pennsylvania before. Oh, no, strike that. I tried one case in Pennsylvania about five years before that. And so, I got the blood here. And it's like a, a kid in a candy. <laughs> I was like, you know, my name's Barry. What do you think or whatever? So I'm like, you know, I got to actually yeah. to a whole panel. Yeah. I really wasn't even sure what to do. <laughs> <laughs> you get to have a conversation. Yeah, it was amazing. I got to actually pick people who actually, you know, I thought felt comfortable with. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that is a good point that, right, that because we, well, I definitely take it for granted because I've only um, been parts of trial teams in Georgia, but um, it's probably, maybe it's better to like learn with that sort of handicap of not really getting to do Vordire. So then when you get to do it, it's just like a nice bonus. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was, I, was, I was like, uh, I guess, judge, I'm looking at the judge. I guess it's asking me anything I want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's awesome. You know me, Steve. I'm ultra shy. <laughs> yeah, I, if if Barry Eichen says, you know, I get to ask him anything I want, then uh, I am uh, very interested in what the next question is. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, listen, Barry, this has been uh, just a really good interview. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you about this case. And, uh, and again, uh, this has been just tremendous work. Is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about the Fusilli uh, trial that we haven't talked about. No, I want to A, thank you and thank Yvonne. Um, I just met you, Yvonne. You're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> she is awesome. And, uh, uh, Steve, brother. Yeah. Brother. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. No, man, this has been, uh, this has been fantastic. And, uh, and Barry, it's always, uh, always fun and, uh, and been a pleasure to talk to you. 
And, uh, and again, we've been talking about the Fusilli versus New Jersey Transit uh, in CNJ case, uh, which was tried in Middlesex County, New Jersey, back in 2005. It was a wrongful death case for the death of Roger Fusilli, and the verdict was a total of $19.2 million, uh, $4.1 million for pain and suffering, and $15.1 million for wrongful death. And our One guess, correction. Well, go ahead. Sorry. It was, New, it was versus Conrail. Okay. Conrail and CNJ because New Jersey Transit, I believe, settled. Actually, I actually read this since I just read Conrail settled is what uh, is Did what Conrail it said. Settled? Yeah, that's what it says. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, so um, so in our guest has been uh, uh, the uh, the fantastic Barry Eichen. Uh He is a partner. Is is the um, um, Senior partner at Iken Crutchlow Zaslow in uh, in Edison, New Jersey, and I can say, uh, ha- you know, having spent time with all of his law partners, they're just it's just a great group of people, fantastic trial lawyers. And if you want to look up uh, Barry, uh, you can go to his website at njadvocates.com. Barry, this has been uh, been a pleasure, man. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Barry. All right, thanks. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>